Turn over then, and we are in Matthew chapter 27, right in the middle now of Christ's own crucifixion. And we encounter a text where all kinds of scorn and abuse is heaped upon him. And at the same time, Matthew, as he presents it to us, all of these words heaped against Christ and the way Matthew frames it, it is just dripping with irony. Now, what is irony? Merriam-Webster provides just that typical definition, says, what is irony? The use of words to express something other than and especially the opposite of the literal meaning. That is, your words may be on the page, or the words that come out of your mouth, so to speak, say one thing, but you mean the very opposite, actually, or it's something very different than what was expected. So, for example, let me just give you some examples of irony. For starters, and we'll just begin right with the Bible, can you guess which is the most shoplifted book in America? Yes, the Bible that says, Thou shalt not steal. Or did you hear that on his deathbed, the founder of AA, that's Alcoholics Anonymous, on his deathbed, he asked for a shot of whiskey. He was denied, ironically enough. Or take this, the CEO of Crayola, you know of Crayola Crayons, he revealed at his retirement after 35 years that he was actually colorblind. (laughs) Could not appreciate all of the colors on that wax box, right? And it's funny, sometimes irony can be funny like that. Other times, however, though, irony hurts. It's painful. In that way, we understand like sarcasm can be a form of irony. That is, one thing comes out of your mouth, but you mean the very opposite by it. Again, that's a type of irony. And we find that kind of twisted irony repeatedly in this text, even used against our Jesus. He's now condemned, of course, and they are heaping all kinds of scorn and abuse with this sick irony and sarcasm. Hail, King of the Jews! Or, save yourself, O Savior! Ha, ha, ha! He's mocked ruthlessly in his moment of greatest pain. But Matthew shows us, really, it is God, so to speak, who has the last laugh. As Matthew directs us, yes, you are seeing a man mocked, you're seeing him killed and abused, but with the truth of God's word, as you see it through the lens that God sees it, you see something very different than what's happening. And that's just a true about our life, walking by faith. You have what's going on in the immediate. You have what's right before your eyes. You have, so to speak, what the world sees. But you must hear what God's Word says about the matter, not what you feel or what you think or what you see. And that's most supremely true as we look to the cross. What do you see when you look to the cross? The world, with their unbelieving eyes, what do they see? They see folly, 1 Corinthians 1. They see failure. They see death. But the gospel tells us that with the eyes of faith, what do we see? Even in his very dying and in the mocking, we see the greatness of Jesus Christ. So what do you see when you look at the cross? That's the question to you Matthew poses this morning. The world sees foolishness and failure. Instead, with eyes of faith, the call is see and behold the greatness of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. That unfolds from us in three ways ironic ways they mock Jesus, this twisted irony of the cross. And the first is this, is how they ridicule him as a king. 
They mock him. They don't think he's a king. But the ironic thing is, is they say, hey, O king of the Jews, he actually is the only king who will rule over all. They ridicule him as a king, though he really was one. Verses 27 to 31. Now we've seen to where we're at now in the gospel. We had the Jewish authorities at the end of chapter 26. They condemned Jesus where they did mock him. They condemned him to death, though. So they gave him, as we saw last time, over to Pontius Pilate. He's the Roman governor. And he was obliged in the end to do the same, to condemn Jesus, namely because, not because he thought Jesus was guilty, mind you, but he had to condemn Jesus because of the crowd, the outrage that was starting to brew right before his eyes. It could not be helped, Pilate would say. And so as we ended last time, verse 26 of chapter 27, what happened? Pilate released to the people, as they asked, for Barabbas, a known murderer, a terrorist, a known criminal. And then they had Jesus scourged, the end of verse 26, and delivered over to be crucified. But before he gets to the cross, the Romans are ready to have some fun. They lead Jesus into their lair. They take this opportunity to compound the pain Jesus is about to feel, and they do it by mocking him and shaming him. Look at verse 27 now of Matthew 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. The governor's headquarters are literally the praetorium This was the place where the praetor or the governor stayed when he came to town. That is, Pilate normally lived in Caesarea. That was kind of the head of his government. But during a high holy day like this in his region that he oversaw, he headed over to Jerusalem, to his headquarters, so to speak, there in the city. And when he came, he knew what the issues might be. He brings an extra large security detail with him. That's these extra soldiers. They were likely in town with Pilate for this high holy day in Israel where Many people are there for the pilgrimage, for the great celebration, Passover, and they are staying probably even in his extended headquarters there in the praetorium. So as they have Jesus ready to over to be crucified, they take him down into the barracks, so to speak. This is the worst kind of barrack, locker room, abuse, and humor. That is, before they're going to kill him, they're going to mock him and humiliate him. Now, why would they be so motivated? Why would they hate him so? Why would they be so motivated to raise such a tax on him like this? Well, we see that they repeatedly, and they particularly mock him as a king. This is what is stuck in their mind and why they're going to act out against Jesus in the way they do. And why is that? Because if you put yourself, posture yourself as a king before Rome, you're saying the Roman government is illegitimate, I should be the ruler. In other words, saying you're the king of Israel means you're a revolutionary. You're a terrorist, maybe. You oppose Roman authority and government. You oppose the Roman soldiers. But now, with him convicted, scourged, being led to crucifixion, the Roman soldiers know, think, they've won. This is ridiculous. He's the king of the Jews, really. And so, at his expense... They're going to shame him and shame all the Jews that hope for some liberation from the Roman oppression and rule. And so let the derision begin, right? Oh, that's rich. You're some kind of king. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Funny. You look nothing like a king. Oh, well, we can fix that. 
And they do, verse 28. In a bizarro, mocking type of way, right? And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Ah, there we are. He's looking more like a king by the second. They got his kingly cloak, a scarlet robe. This was probably the cape that a number of the Roman soldiers donned. One let Jesus borrow it for a moment, perhaps. And now the king wears a crown, though, of course. It's a crown of thorns. Ah, but the king is not complete if he doesn't have his scepter to rule with. And so they put this stick or staff in his right hand. And now the adoring subjects, these Roman soldiers, they chime in, verse 29. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. There you have it. Gentile pagan soldiers bowing before Jesus, calling him king. But of course, it's all ridicule. This is ironic. They intend it that way. It all looks right. They say the right words, Hail, King of the Jews. But they said it with a jeering tone, a sarcastic meaning. None of them feared Jesus. None of them cared to bow to him as king. He's not a king. He's a joke. That's what the soldiers saw. So they mock him. They mock him to add to his shame. And then they pile on the abuse to add to his pain. Verse 30. And they spit on him. That's what they think of him. They took the reed that was in his hand and they struck him on the head. And the idea is repeatedly... Again, this all shows what they think about this king and his kingdom. It's a joke. And why would they do this? Because they feared no reprisal from him. They weren't scared of his kingdom. They weren't scared of this king. I mean, what's to fear? He's going to die. What a loser. Look at him. Then having their fun, they go, send him on to die. Verse 31. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They'd had their fun, they'd had their sport, now it was back to business. Time to get this king back on track for his death, put him where he belongs. Serves him right, thinking he could oppose Rome and withstand us. What a fool. Bye-bye, King Jesus. Enjoy your throne atop of that cross. But of course, that's the great irony of all of this. They spoke better than they knew as they mockingly bowed to him and hailed him as king, they spoke the very truth, though they didn't mean a word of it. That is, he was, he is the king of the Jews. Actually, more than that, he's the king of kings. He's the king over all nations. He rules over Rome. He rules over Israel. He rules over Russia. He rules over Ukraine and certainly the United States. He is king over all. He has rights to it all. And one day, all nations, all soldiers, all citizens, indeed, they will bow to him and say, Hail the king of the Jews. Only without the slightest bit of sarcasm or irony. Philippians 2 tells us, looking to that final day, this is Philippians 2.10 following. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That he is king. He is Lord. He is God. And we must bow to him now. And again, that's the greater irony of all of this. As even Philippians notes, he gets to that exalted place 
precisely because he gave himself over to mocking, to shame, to be beaten. He became the humbled and abused servant of all, not retaliating, though he had all the opportunity to do so, because he had all the power to retaliate. But he kept it all in check. Why? To serve sinners by giving his life. And it's for this, Philippians tells us, why he's given the name above every name. Can you see that as you look to the cross? What do you see when you see him mocked, when you see him abused? Do you see kingly power reigning from the cross? Or do you see weakness, foolishness? More pointedly, do you see a king that is really worth bowing before? A king who's worth following, worth obeying unquestioningly with whatever he asks of you. For God says, this is what this great king is worthy of. Full allegiance and obedience. Instead of saying, yes, Lord, but I really think, or I really want, or I, I, I. No, you bow to King Jesus, and it's, yes, Lord. And look again at this king. What he's endured for you. When he asks you something, does he not know your best? Does he not want your best? Does he not command you for your good? Does he not really care for you? Look again with believing eyes and bow to this king in full allegiance and obedience. They mocked him as a king, but he is the king, the only one worth bowing before. The next great irony, however, is this, is how they taunt him. They treat him like a guilty criminal, though he wasn't one. That was underscored for us last week in particular as we saw his trial before Pilate, which underscored time and again that he's innocent. He wasn't guilty, and yet he's still condemned, and he still trudges forward here. Again, though guilty, though he was not, but he's treated like a criminal all the same. There's many facets to this. We see in the first place, as a criminal, he's abandoned. And in this way, mocked, so to speak, by this another Simon here in verse 32. Look at this. And they went out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, this wasn't customary. That is, much about the death of Jesus on the cross was not all that spectacular. That is, many other Jews had died on crosses. But this was unique. Typically, the condemned criminal would carry the crossbar, the horizontal part of the cross, carry it to the place of execution. It's about a 40-pound crossbar for a grown man. Not maybe easy, but not terribly hard to carry. But what was different about Jesus was how utterly, horribly, he had been abused and scourged and pummeled by the Romans, such that he couldn't make it all the way to the cross. He stumbled and fell. We get the sense when we compare this with John's gospel, Jesus carried the cross beam himself part the way, seems right out the city gate, and then at that point, as they start to get out of the city, Jesus apparently buckles under the weight and falls, and that's right when and where this Simon of Cyrene was coming in. 
Simon gets conscripted by the Romans to finish the job. Hey, you, you grab that cross, you carry it the rest of the way. Certainly the Romans weren't going to do it for him. And it's interesting. This word compelled this man. That's the same word that Jesus uses when you are compelled to go a mile that you would go with them too. Well, Simon's going to go the mile, so to speak, whether he wanted to or not, because there was a Roman sword to his back. But Matthew notes, he draws out an irony here, namely that the stranger that was just providentially picked to carry the cross, his name was Simon. It's ironic because one of Jesus' very closest disciples' name was what? Simon Peter. Well, where is he? Where are your close friends? They're not here. They've abandoned you. They've denied you. So only here, there's a Simon to carry your cross, but it's not the one who promised to die with you. It's the a stranger takes Peter's place. What does this highlight? But that our Lord has been abandoned by all of his friends. And why did they abandon him? Because they saw that he was doomed and condemned to die. Which is the next aspect of him being a criminal. He's doomed and he's mocked in his death. Verse 33. This is seen as he's taken to this ominous place called the place of the skull. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. That is, Golgotha would be the Jewish name for this. It would be Golgotha in Aramaic. That's the common language the Jews spoke. It just means skull. And because of this, it's called the place of the skull. There were some historians, uh, an archaeologist a generation more ago, like Charles Gordon, who suspected that the actual hill itself had the appearance of a skull, that that's how it's got its name. But more likely, this hill got its name not for what it looked like, but for what happened there, namely executions. This is the hill of skull and bones. Death marked this hill. This is where people go to die. Let's go, Jesus. We have a place just for you, King. It's this nice little hill right outside the city. You have a good view of everything. Oh, interesting. What's it called? Oh, the place of the skull. As a criminal, too, we see he's next tortured and mocked in his pain. The ridicule increases as they mock him in his pain. Verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It's gall. It means it's bitter. It's poisonous. This fulfills precisely the picture given in Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And again, what's the context there? This is all to mock him in his pain. Oh, boy, you look thirsty. Was that hard to carry? Here, try this. Ha, ha, ha. As thirsty he might have been, as he tasted it, it was too bitter. He knew it was poisonous. It was horrible. He wouldn't drink anymore. But you can imagine, surely the soldiers were amused. Look at his face as he drank it. <laughs> He's shamed as a criminal, mocked in his helplessness. See, when you're crucified, there was no convenient loincloth to cover you. You were stripped naked to hang there for all to see, all to gawk, all to be revolted, to turn away in disgust as they see you. 
And the soldiers that crucified you, they got the spoils. Whatever you had on you, that was theirs. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And as the gall in the wine, and so this move from the executioners, again, fulfills precisely what the scriptures predicted. And again, consider how stunning this is. This is from Psalm 22, which we got at our prayer this morning. Just listen to this, written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. The psalmist writes, A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So if you knew the Scriptures and saw what was happening to Jesus... You know that it was being fulfilled just as God had predicted and said and determined. God's in control. This looks horrible, but God's in control. But that's the thing from afar. He looked like just another weak, failed revolutionary dying there. And the soldiers, unknowingly of any of that, certainly the scriptures that they were fulfilling, they looked on to guard the men, lest someone try and Rescue him from the cross. Verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. I mean, think about this, of course. He was a pretty popular guy less than a week ago. The crowds were saying, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is the one who comes, the name of the Lord. Surely one of them might try and rescue him from the cross. But nobody came. And so he is there condemned, mocked as a king. Verse 37. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's with that we maybe understand a bit more of the crucifixion, the why of it, from at least the Romans' perspective, why it was so horrible. And so then public, right, crucifixions were not done in a back alley. They were not done in secret. They were not done in dungeons. People were strewn up horrifically in the most conspicuous of places to be publicly tortured and killed. And it wasn't merely or mainly for sport. Early on, the Romans, they did not delight in this. Crucifixion was not a polite conversation. It could not be mentioned because it was so horrible. Well, what's the point? Why would you publicly then put these people out there if it's not for sport? Of course we know why. It's to be a deterrent for anyone else to try and mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. Don't break their laws. You're going to end up like that guy. Well, what laws? And this is it. This is why it's so important that the charge or crime be posted on the top of the cross. tells you why he was there. And what was Jesus' crime? They had written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He was condemned as a criminal. He was condemned as a revolutionary, a terrorist, an insurrectionist, a rebel. He was condemned for challenging Caesar's right to rule in Israel. And so, death is the torturous answer. So he's been condemned because he's convicted as a criminal taking the place with criminals and sinners. Verse 38. The charge atop the cross 
told you what you already knew, was that whoever is hanging on there is a horrible person. They had broken the law horribly. They were taking on the worst punishment. They were suffering as a criminal. And in this case, Jesus did not die alone. He had other criminals crucified with him. Verse 38, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. I think we can surmise Jesus probably took Barabbas's place. Remember him? He was the known murderer being released or the known robber. But this is just, just a generic word for criminal. It's probably leading some coup or rebellion, murdered somebody. And so these other two were probably in cahoots with Barabbas. The three of them had tried to overthrow the Roman government or hurt some official or something like this. And so you see, Jesus literally takes the place of Barabbas there on the cross. That is, that morning, Barabbas expected to go to that cross, but now Jesus has taken his place. Now, we know why Jesus hung there. We know it wasn't for any crimes that he had done. But again, what would you see from afar without knowing more? You're walking into Jerusalem that day, and you see up on the hill... Three crucifixes. One, two, three criminals. But for those, that, again, that know their scriptures, you might well expect this, wouldn't you? For the prophet Isaiah had promised, we had read this some time ago, Isaiah 53, verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, counted among them just like he's one of them. He was being treated as a criminal killed like the worst of criminals in the most cruel ways for transgressors to die when all ironically he wasn't one. He was framed, you might say, but he was not dying or being condemned in vain. The prophecy of Isaiah continues. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is why he's condemned as a criminal, do you see? Not for his crimes, because he had none, but for yours and mine, if you trust him. This is the imagery, that powerful imagery, Paul leverages in Colossians chapter 2 to describe our salvation. In Colossians chapter 2, what we find there is Paul describes how by faith alone in Christ, you are made spiritually alive. You have eternal life with God. Why? Because you're now innocent before God. You're righteous before God. You've been forgiven before God. All your sins are gone. But how could that be? How can God do that? Well, here's what Paul says in Colossians 2.14. God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, every time you disobey one of God's laws, the wage of sin is death. You've earned upon yourself an eternal death sentence. Every sin, death. Every sin, death, awaiting to that point of judgment where all of that gets enacted upon you. You are guilty and you have a long rap sheet, as he calls it, this record of debt that stood against us. So how do we get out from that? Here's what Paul says. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see what happened? By faith in Christ... All of your sins, all of your failures, all your trespasses were nailed as crimes to the top of Christ's cross. So that while his charge read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, there were many other crimes nailed there too for those that have eyes to see. 
That is, instead of it reading, this is Rick, an idolater, this is Rick, an adulterer, this is Rick, a thief, or a liar, or a greedy person, or a selfish person, or a gossipy person, instead of all of that, it was taken from your neck and put upon Christ's cross, where it then reads, this is Jesus, an idolater, this is Jesus, an adulterer, this is Jesus, a thief, a liar, a greedy person. All your debts, your crimes were put upon the cross of Christ. That he would die for them instead of you. That he would take the punishment instead of you. That's the gospel. That's why he's treated like a criminal. Because your crimes, if you trust him, are put on him. That he's condemned for them in your place. So you don't have to be. So will you trust him? Will you believe, struggling believer, even now, that there is, because of Christ, now none, no condemnation for those in Christ? Why? Because he died for them all. The cross was serious. He really took care of sin, or he didn't. He was either dying for his crimes or dying for yours. What will you believe? Was he a criminal or was he a substitute? He was a substitute for all who trust in him. Look to him. For there's no condemnation in him for those that are in Christ. Third, related to all of that, they finally mock him as a savior. This is the greatest mockery of all. They mock him. They say, oh, what a great savior you are, knowing in their minds that he's powerless. They mock him as a savior, but here's the thing. He actually was one. He's the only savior, and he was being the savior by being mocked and beaten and crucified. That's the great irony of the cross. We see it here as they mock him. We see three different groups now come to mock Jesus. First, we have the passerbys. Remember, the criminal was to be crucified in a public space, typically right along the main road, so everyone could see it. And those that walk by, they join the scorn. Verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. Indeed, the word got around. And so it was sticking with folks. All that Jesus had said about the temple some years before. And this word that he gave, that he would rebuild the temple in three days. Two, that was also central to that Jewish trial against him before Caiaphas, you remember. But here's the irony. When Jesus made that comment, it seemed ridiculous at the time. The Jews challenged him on it. It took 46 years for us to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And now he hangs on the cross. Whatever he thought he was going to do, that's impossible now. You thought you would destroy the temple. Ha <laughs> ha. Nice try, dude. Forget it. Look at you now. Poor little Jesus. Can't get a chance to get his hands on the temple. Mm. Oh, that's rich. Rebuild it in three days. Sure you will. But the great irony is what? He is going to rebuild the temple in three days. The temple of his flesh. Once they destroy that temple on that cross... He was going to raise it up in three days, conquering death because he had conquered the sin that put it there. 
And so that sin would forever be moved away from his people. You get That's what the temple is for. It's some way for people to get back with God, given that he is so holy and we are so sinful. Well, now that's all blown to pieces because Jesus rose from the dead and the sin is gone. And all his people are right with him. And his spirit now even lives inside of them. He has reconciled God and men by this very act on the cross. That's the very way, the cross, the torment, the torture, the punishment. This is the way he will save, not himself, of course. He will save all that trust in him. But next, the Jewish leaders pile on, adding their own insults and mockings. And they, too, hone in on this idea that he is a powerless savior. Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. They think they're so clever. The Jewish leaders find it so ironic that Jesus saved or healed so many people, and yet he can't possibly heal himself. Oh, poor thing. Boo-hoo. Poor Jesus, the healer and savior. Ha, ha, ha. And what's the implication in the Jewish leader's mind? They're vindicated. They won. They were right all along. Jesus probably didn't really heal anyone anyways. It's all just made-up stories. It's all fake. Look at him. Otherwise, he could save himself from the cross if he was so strong and mighty as his followers claimed. So they just mockingly announced, We don't believe in you. You're a fraud. And so they call Jesus bluff, so to speak, as they mockingly dare him to do a miracle. Look at verse 42. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. And this is where, as we root for Jesus in the story, we just might well then imagine him from the cross saying, fine, enough's enough. Pulling his arms off the cross, grabbing the nails on his feet, throwing those down, coming down from the cross, and then just walking right at those scoffing at him. Like, just to see their faces in that moment, right? Like, dude, we messed with the wrong guy. Would they believe in him then? As they promised. Maybe. They would believe he's powerful. They would believe, yes, we messed with the wrong guy. But here's the thing. If he comes down from the cross, he is no savior. If he comes down from the cross, they might believe in him. But he can't save anyone. He can only come down from the cross then to be their judge and ours. Well, that's the irony. If he came down from the cross, there'd be no use in believing in him. Next, though, they even challenge the genuineness of his own faith and trust in God. Verse 43. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And again, of course, they say this. But they don't think for a moment that he's God's son. They don't think God will ever deliver him. Why? Because they know he's cursed. He's hanging on a tree. And the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He is cursed of God. God does not delight in him. God doesn't want him. God doesn't desire him. God doesn't even like him. God has cursed him. Oh, and he claimed to be God's son? Are you serious? What a fraud. The scorn was irresistible. It's like all creation at this moment turns on him to mock him, 
to make jokes at him, to belittle him, to laugh at him, delighting in his pain, delighting in his colossal failure, such that even the condemned criminals on either side of him join in. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Son of God, ha! He couldn't even be God's dog. He's cursed. And again, from afar, that's how everything seems. By your look of your physical eye, that's what you would see. He looks cursed. He looks forsaken. He looks reviled. He looks punished. And in a sense, of course, he was. And not just by men, right? God was crushing him. God was cursing him. God was rejecting him. But of course, as we've studied, we've said this morning even, that was for no wrong that he had done, but all of ours. Of course, we cannot escape again, Isaiah 53. We esteemed, thought of him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We came to peace with God because he took our sins and absorbed by himself the punishment for all of them because he died in our place for us to save us. And so while by all appearances, Jesus looked like a total failure on the cross, though he looked like a criminal on the cross, though he looked powerless, forsaken on the cross, with eyes of faith, we know he wasn't just dying, but he was dying for our sins. With believing eyes, we look to the cross and we see a glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? He asked his disciples. What do you see when you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus even hanging on the cross? What do you see? But those of faith say, but you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God, my Savior from sin. They ridicule you about your kingdom. They mock you. But you rose. You are my king. You're alive. They taunt you. They scorn you. They they say you were guilty or criminal, but you were guilty for me. They mock you as powerless, unable to save. But it's that very way that you saved my soul from eternal hell. You are my savior. I need no other. That's what we see when we look to the cross. What do you see when you look to the cross? Do you see a king? Can you bow to the crucified king? They ridicule him thinking he wasn't a king, but we, in its place, we bow to Jesus as our king. What does that mean? That means we submit ourselves fully to his word. So, is he your king? Well, do you obey him? Do you follow him? Will you take up your cross and follow the king wherever he tells you to go? And if you doubt whether that's a good command or word he gives you, again, look to the cross. Can you not trust this king because he's there on the cross for you? Bow to your king. And then again, when they look at the cross, they saw a criminal. But look to the cross and see your substitute, your sacrifice. Do you see Jesus being condemned for you in your place? Do you believe he really paid it all? And that means that there is no condemnation. None. Not even for you if you're in Christ. It's gone. 
Can you dare believe that you are righteous before the perfectly holy God? Because it's only because of the cross that would be true. See the one who is condemned as a criminal because you were one. See the one who is your substitute. But finally, when they look at the cross, they saw a powerless, non-savior, where we trust him as our only savior. When you look at the cross, do you see one powerful enough to save you from hell? When you look at the cross, do you see one strong enough to even in this moment break the power of sin? In other words, when you look at the cross, do you see the greatness of Jesus Christ? Will you trust him? And again, as you doubt, and we do, we saw it in the psalm as he cried in prayer and in agony. But if we doubt, where can our eyes go? But we can look to the cross through all the mocking and all the noise and see the true significance of it all, that Jesus Christ is great and greatly to be praised, for he is our powerful Savior. May we obey in full King Jesus. Let's pray to him for that. Indeed, O Christ, we trust you. We confess that you are our king, and we have failed you as our king. We have not lived perfectly obedient to you as our king. And so we confess again that we need a great substitute. We need a sacrifice. And we confess that you are the one who took our crimes. And finally, we say that we trust you as a powerful Savior. As those you have redeemed by your blood, your church, may we walk in the power of this truth that you have saved us from sin and death, and may we walk in the power of your Spirit. For the glory of Christ alone we pray. Amen.